Heavenly Father, we thank you that every time we open the Bible, we hear you speak. And Father, this morning as we struggle with the vanity and vexation in our own individual lives or in family life or work life or national life, we need to hear you, Lord, because you alone have the words of life. And so, Father, we come to you now asking that you would feed us through your word, that you would apply your word to our hearts wherever we're at this morning, that you would encourage us, that you would teach us, that you train us, that you might rebuke us, that we would grow in the love and knowledge of you and seek to navigate our way through this world of trouble with faith in you and your Son. And we pray it in his name. Amen. How do you cope with life? Many years ago when my daughter Jasmine was young, she was my barista's assistant. I have an espresso machine. She put on her little Starbucks apron. She's about four years old. She'd stand in a chair next to me and I'd say, turn on the button there and she'd turn on the machine and turn this dial here and that'll run the espresso and she'd turn the dial all excitedly. And then came the best part for her. I would turn on the steam wand. So I'd turn it, the machine would start pumping loudly and then all the steam would come blasting out of the wand. And she'd look at it in surprise and amazement and I'd say, Jasmine, try to catch the steam. And she'd giggle and she'd try to gag, grab the steam. And at first, she thought it was kind of funny. She's trying to grab something that just keeps running through her hands. And then she'd kind of give me this perplexing, confused look like, Dad, I can see it and I can feel it, but why can't I grab it and hold on to it? Does life ever feel like that to you? You can't catch the steam. Just when you think things are going well, just when you think everything's happening according to plan, life hits us sideways. Things don't work out the way we intended. Something bad happens. We can't catch the steam. Let's set this passage in context. If you can turn with me, you have a Bible back to chapter 1, verse 3. I think chapter 1, verse 3 is the controlling verse for what's going on in the book. The author asks, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So this book from chapter 1, 3 all the way to the end is an exploration of life under the sun. What does that mean? I think that the fall of Adam and Eve, their sin, in Genesis chapter 3 is the backdrop for the book. Under the sun means what is life like outside of the garden when we had a perfect relationship in God in his presence? What is life like in a broken and confused world? That's what the author is exploring through work, through family, through money, through pleasure. He's asking, what is life like under the sun? How do we know that it's life outside of the garden? Well, if you look at chapter 1, verse 15, and chapter 1, verse 18, he goes on to present two major problems in life. The first one is in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. Our world is crooked and broken, and no matter our best minds and our best efforts and our best technology and our best engineering, we cannot create paradise on earth, no matter how hard we try. And the reality is, even if we could, Adam and Eve fell in paradise. We still got the sin problem. So that's problem one. What is crooked and cannot be made straight? And problem two 
is in verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Wisdom and knowledge are good things. They have their place. They're helpful. But the author says even that can be vexing. What does he mean by that? Well, if you've read Proverbs, Proverbs is very black and white about wisdom. It says if you're wise, you're wise for yourself. If you're foolish, you're foolish for yourself. The wise man will eat the fruit of his ways. The foolish man will eat the fruit of his ways. It's very clear. If you're wise, you'll have a good life. Your house will be filled with good things. If you're foolish, it won't go well. But the author of Ecclesiastes says, wait a minute. It doesn't always seem to work that way, does it? Maybe you do fear God. Maybe you are wise. And yet bad things happen and life doesn't work out the way you expect it to. And people who are foolish and wicked, they seem to do very well quite, thank you very much. Wisdom can be vexing because we live in a crooked world. And so chapter by chapter, the preacher is going on this journey of exploring life under the sun, and you can summarize his discovery so far as follows. Life is fleeting. Life is frustrating. Life is confusing. Life can be terribly unfair. Life is like steam or vapor that you can't catch and hold onto. But though vanity and vexation are constant throughout this book, the preacher does see the hand of God and he does express faith a number of times throughout the book and he will in the chapter before us as well. And he says that though life under the sun might be fleeting, whatever God does endures forever. Chapter 3, verse 14. So that's the context. So now we come to chapter 8. Before we dig in, I want to say this. I think the main idea is what I've said. I think the main idea of this passage is we can't catch the steam. I'll talk about that in a moment. If you look at chapter 8, verse 17 He says, I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. There is an end to wisdom. God is ultimately unsearchable and his ways can be inscrutable. We can't catch the steam. I think that's the main idea. And so if that's the main idea, how are we to respond to that truth? Well, there's three parts. The first part is verses 1 to 9, and it's this. Submit to earthly government with wise discretion. Submit to earthly government with wise discretion. Look at verse 1. He asks the question, rhetorical question, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. Now look at verse 5 with me. He says, whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. About what? Well, about verses 2 to 4, our relationship with earthly authority. He goes from asking who is wise and who can discern to verse 2 and saying, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. 
Because of God's oath to him, what does that mean? Well, it could be referring to the covenant God made with David that I have made an oath that you will be king and you will sit on the throne. Some translations will say, actually, it's the opposite. It's because our oath to a king that we make an oath that we will obey kings and earthly leaders. Could be either one. Either way, the point is this. God sets kings and rulers and presidents and authorities in their place. It's his work. Romans chapter 13 verse 1 says as much. They're put there by God's authority. So he says, keep the king's command. Submit in leadership. Submit to earthly leadership. So coming to this question that comes before it, who is like the wise, who knows the interpretation of a thing? I think a great answer is Daniel. Daniel, chapter 1, verse 15, said his appearance was better than everyone else's. Why did Daniel's face shine? Chapter 8, verse 1, before Nebuchadnezzar and all the rulers. Because he was a man of God who was filled with wisdom by God. Who knows the interpretation of a thing? What did Daniel do? He interpreted the king's dreams, didn't he? And the king realized there's no one else like this guy. And it actually says that in chapter 1, verses 19 to 20 of Daniel, no one else was like Daniel and his friends in matters of wisdom and understanding. Who was like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? Who knew how to behave before governmental authority? Daniel did. And Nebuchadnezzar, I'll remind you, was a pagan king. He was a godless idolater. He was evil. How did Daniel respond to him? He served and he submitted. I was thinking last night about King David and Saul. <laughs> you remember the story? You did a series last year on 1 Samuel. How many times did Saul throw spears at David to try to kill him? And David had to duck the spear and it would go into the wall. King Saul chased David in the wilderness into caves with his mighty men, and David had to hide from him. Never once did David speak against Saul or lift his hand against the king. And when Saul's life ended, you might remember the story, and the young man came all pleased to tell David that Saul is dead. What did David do? He had that young man killed. David said, you must not lift your hand against God's anointed. And Saul was an evil king who tried to take David's life. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Why is it important then and now to obey earthly governmental authority? Because God established it. God governs and directs all of the affairs of the world, including those who are in authority. And so, verse 2, obey them. Verse 3, be not hasty to go from his presence. What does that mean? Don't be quick to obey your post. Don't be quick to show disloyalty. Don't be quick to stand in an evil cause against those in authority, verse 3, because he does whatever he pleases. Be careful about rebellion. He doesn't wield the sword for nothing. God's put him in place. 
the preacher says obey. Don't be quick to be disloyal and don't take your stand in an evil cause. And if that's not enough for you, there's a positive reason. Look at verse 5. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. It's generally (laughs) a good thing in our best interest to obey the law and those in authority because it keeps us out of trouble, right? Basic common sense. Don't need a lot of wisdom to know that one. And the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy said, I desire that we pray for all those in authority and that we do what in response to them? Seek to lead a quiet and godly life, peaceful and dignified in every way, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. It's pleasing to God when we pray for those in authority, when we recognize that authority with loyalty and respect, and we seek to live lives that are quiet and peaceable and obedient to the law. This is pleasing in the sight of God. Brothers and sisters, it's part of our witness as God's people in this world. And (laughs) it's usually pleasing to the authorities as well. And again, look at Daniel. Daniel pleased Nebuchadnezzar with his behavior and with his wisdom. And what happened? In chapter 2, verse 40 of Daniel, it said Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel reign over the whole of Babylon. The wise, godly man Daniel, who served and submitted the king, became number two only to Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't that extraordinary? God placed a wise man of his own next to the throne of the godless nation of Babylon. And he's not the only one. When Egypt was the most powerful empire in the world and Pharaoh ruled all, who was number two? Joseph, a wise and godly man who served and submitted to Pharaoh. When Babylon was gone and the Persian Empire became the most powerful empire in the world and King Artaxerxes was on his throne over all of it, who was number two? Mordecai, a wise and godly man who served and submitted to the king. And now in heaven, the Word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, is seated at the right hand of the majesty. Wisdom incarnate, far above all rule and authority. And this Jesus, when he was on earth, said this, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Taxes, respect, Whatever it is, Jesus said, you give it. And that's to Rome. And lastly, verse 8, look with me. God's rule. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. And there's no discharge from war. God's rule is inescapable, and death is inescapable. We will not choose the way we die. We will not choose the day we die. 
We will not choose when our last will break, when we have our last breath, and we won't be able to have another one after it. We have no power over it. Even powerful rulers that seem immovable. Think about history. All the great pharaohs, all the great kings, all the great queens, all the great empires, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Rome, Greece, the British Empire, the Portuguese Empire, the French Empire. Where are they now? Dust. Consigned to the dustbin of history. But your throne, O God, endures forever. Before I move on to the second point, I know there's a question on your lips. Everybody's dying to ask it, and here it is. Well, that all sounds great and wonderful and very pietistic and godly, and yeah, Daniel sure is a great guy, but when's it okay to disobey earthly authority? That's what we really want to know, isn't it? If we're honest, when's it okay to disobey? And as I thought about that question this week, I thought, it's interesting. There's always certain commands in the Bible where we want to find a way out, where we want to negotiate. Love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? Forgive one another. Well, how many times do I have to forgive? Give money to the work of the kingdom, the gospel. How much do I have to give? Submit to those in authority. Well, when's it okay to disobey? What is that? Is that the command? Or is it our hearts? So, the question, when's it okay to disobey earthly rule? Or simple answer, when they require you to do something contrary to God's way. That's the only time. And even then, verse 5, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. You don't do it in a fit of anger and rage in a moment. You prayerfully talk to God and others, and you wisely consider the time to do it and the way to do it. Daniel, again, submitted to all things until... Nebuchadnezzar says you've got to worship a golden calf. And it was only then that Daniel took a stand against an evil king and said, that's as far as we go. I am not going to bow to the metal image, and either will my friends. And you know the story, they were put in the lion's den, and by God's hand they're rescued. But they said, even if God doesn't rescue us, we will not bow to anyone but the Lord God. Martin Luther, who started the Reformation, if you read a biography by him, on, by Eric McTaxis, which I recommend, by the way, Martin Luther was tormented by the idea of disobeying the Pope and the Emperor. It wasn't something he did in the flash of the pan overnight. He wrestled with God and with others and said it's a very serious thing to stand against those in authority, the Pope and the Emperor at the time, the two most powerful people in Europe. And he really wrestled and he went through extraordinary lengths to be respectful, humble, to try to keep peace and try to find a way to change the church within. It was years. 
before he came to that place and said, I have to stand with the word of God. My conscience is captive, and I cannot move. But even then, he hoped and prayed that there would be a break and they could stay together. That's when you do it. A conscience that's captive to the word of God. A wise heart that seeks to obey those in authority. Number two, much shorter point. The intended response to not catching the steam, verses 10 to 14, understand and take confidence in judgment. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity or vapor. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. What's the author saying here? It's bad enough that there's evil people in the world, but verse 10, they went in and out of the holy place. These are people who have the facade of being God's people. They went to the temple. They put money in the treasury. They take part in the sacrifices. They take part in the prayers and God's praises. And he says, and yet they were wicked, these to go in and out, and then they were praised. They were praised because of what they did. And he said, this is a vanity. And then because, verse 11, it seems like justice takes so long, people are emboldened. Well, let's join them and do the same thing because it looks like God doesn't really care. This is very frustrating, isn't it? We have to ask the question sometimes, why do wicked people seem to prosper? It looks like it, doesn't it? And why do godly people seem to suffer for so long when they are following God and doing things His way? Especially those who come to churches and put in the facade of faith but are living wicked lives. The author is reminding us our world is crooked. It's not going the way it was intended. Why do prosperity preachers thrive. They build their ministry on greed, deceit, and spiritual manipulation. They fly in Learjets. They drive Rolls Royces. They wear Rolls Rolexes. They got enormous mansions and property abroad. They live the good life. They eat well. And it goes on for decades. And they die wealthy. And it looks like they got away with it, doesn't it? And then there's my friend Fito in Haiti, who struggled his whole life to put bread on the table every day as he faithfully preached God's word in a village church in the bushes of Haiti. And he died young and tragically and left his family with nothing. It's not fair. It's not right. It's a vanity. People often don't seem to get what they deserve in this life. John the Baptist was beheaded on a whim while King Herod partied on. We can't catch the steam. And if we're tempted to point the finger upwards and say, God, this is your problem and it's your fault things are like this, Turn to chapter 7, verse 29. The same author who wrote this says, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, 
but they have sought out many schemes. God made us upright. He didn't make us sinful. He didn't make us neutral. He made us upright. But we in our sinful rebellion have sought out many schemes. Our sin has undone creation. Our sin is the cause of the crooked world. Our sin is the cause of vexation. Our sin is the cause of vanity. And that's why things are the way they are. And then if it's not bad enough, he says again, verse 11, the delay emboldens people. And maybe we do ask sometimes, why is there a delay? Why, O oh Lord, does it take so long for the wicked to be punished? Why do you allow these people to go on and on and on and on? Because he's merciful. That's why. God's heart is mercy. He doesn't desire, desire the, death, the death of a sinner, but rather that we would turn from our wickedness and live. That's why there's a delay. God is patient in leading us to repentance because he is a God of mercy. It's not that he's in care. And so the, in the midst of this turmoil and this struggle, what does the preacher say? He gives us a beautiful glimpse in verses 12 and 13. Look with me. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, right? So though the sinner seems to keep going on and on and there's a delay, he says what? I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Future tense. It will be well. Maybe not now, but it will be with those who fear before him. But, verse 13, it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. The preacher here is revealing his faith and he's calling us to faith. He's saying there will, future tense, be a judgment. Accounts will be settled. What we do in life echoes in eternity. It does matter. And so this is a call to trust God in spite of the circumstances. It is crooked. It is cruelly unfair sometimes. Things don't work out the way they should. That guy over there does well when he's godless. I'm struggling while I'm struggling to obey you. But in spite of that, trust God. He sees. He knows there will be a judgment. It will be well for those who follow him. It will not be well for those who do not. Because look at verse 14. It continues. Here's another vapor, another vanity that takes place in earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said this also is a vanity. It's vexing and it's frustrating. I read this first, and the first person that came to mind was Robert Mugabe, the president of Zimbabwe from 1980 to 2017. Robert Mugabe reigned a reign of terror and violence and evil on the people of Zimbabwe for 37 years. And I followed that on the news, and I would just be exasperated, and I would pray sometimes, God, why do you allow that guy to keep killing people and destroying the economy? Why do you let him go on for 37 years? He died a rich man peacefully. He was violent. He destroyed his country to stay in power. He said once, only God can remove me from office. 
And then godly leaders struggle their way, and what should happen to Robert Mugabe happens to them. We can't catch the steam, but, says the preacher, there will be a calling to account. There will be judgment. And so put your faith in that in the midst of this crooked world. The final intended response is in verses 15 to 17, and it's this. Enjoy life. In the midst of the confusion and not understanding the end, enjoy life. Life is filled with toil and frustration, but it also has God's good gifts. Look at verse 15. I commend joy. I don't commend griping. I don't commend bitterness. I don't commend misery. I don't commend ingratitude. I commend joy. Joy is God's gift, and so is eat and drink and be joyful. Is this Epicureanism? You know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? No. This is the person of faith living in a crooked world and struggling, but finding joy in God and in his good gifts, which he does give us. A barbecue with friends and family one evening. Swimming at the lake with your friends and your kids on a hot summer day. The joy of the Sunday gathering when we devote ourselves to the word and we pray together, enjoy the blessings of fellowship and the gift of the Lord's table. Walking your dog in the cool of the morning with a hot cup of coffee. These are God's many good gifts. And the preacher says, enjoy them. They're God-given. And encourage one another as we do so. But then he ends with, again, what I think is the main idea. We can't catch the steam. Verses 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, I saw the work of God that man cannot find out the work that's done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. There is a pattern, but it's beyond us. God is ultimately unsearchable, and his ways can be inscrutable, and we just have to accept that. We cannot grab the steam no matter how hard we try. Like me with the espresso machine in Jasmine, we want to be like me, right? Controlling the machine. I know how it all works. I've got it all organized. Little Jasmine doesn't know. She's laughing at the steam, but I know exactly what's going on. In life, we want to be like me controlling the espresso machine. And the author's saying, no. <laughs> We're the children on the chair. We don't understand how the machine works. We don't understand where the steam comes from. We don't know where it goes. We don't know why we can't hold on to it. But our loving Father is standing next to us. We're all on the chair. And he's saying, don't worry about it. I've got it. It's my job. Trust me and enjoy the good things that I give to you. We are powerless. Maybe right now, you're feeling the futility of life. The futility of marriage, the futility of family life. Maybe you feel futility at work. Maybe you feel futility in community. 
in public life, what's what's going on in our country and our world. Maybe you feel the frustration and the vexation right now, and you might feel like you're at your rope's end. I want to tell you, futility is not the first word in our world, and it doesn't have to be the last. I asked myself this week, and I ask you, in the midst of all the vexation and frustration of life, what difference has Jesus coming made to all this anyways? Well, his incarnation means Jesus is not distant from us, and he's not unacquainted with what we face. Jesus lived and died as one of us. Jesus experienced vexation and frustration in our world. Jesus saw his friend Lazarus die early, and he wept. Jesus watched the wicked prosper. Jesus watched the Roman emperors rise and rule the world. Jesus heard people cry, How long, O Lord? Jesus, the high king of heaven, stood before Pilate, and he submitted. Jesus, the high king of heaven, stood before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, and he submitted. Jesus, though innocent as a dove, submitted to the criminal's death of crucifixion. And because Jesus has come into our world and has tasted and experienced everything you and I have, he gives meaning and purpose to our life. He calls us to love God and love neighbor. That's the way we navigate it. To love him and to live for him is life. And of course, he's given us his spirit so that we're not alone. He's given us one another, God's people, so that we're not alone. You are not alone. And Jesus, through his incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection, he has redeemed us from vanity and vexation. Futility is not the last word. For us, my brothers and sisters, the last word is resurrection. And though weeping may tarry now and through the night, I promise you, joy will come in the morning. Amen.